Renovation Church and all those who have joined in with us this morning. We're glad that you're with us. Uh, we're continuing our series in the Psalms. Uh, we're calling this series Good News in the Psalms. We trust it will be an encouragement to every one of you as you listen and engage with us. Uh, my name is Michael Mazie. I'm one of the elders here. It is truly a privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, let me pray before we begin, and uh, we'll jump into the message this morning. Father, thank you so much uh, for your faithfulness and goodness toward us. We pray uh, now that as we turn our attention to your word, that your Holy Spirit would be active in our hearts and speak to us very personally and clearly. Open our eyes and our ears, and may uh, we be receptive. We pray this in Jesus' name. You're the man. That's what Nathan the prophet said to David when he confronted him and uncovered his hidden sin. You may know the story from 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. It was a time when kings were out to engage in battle, and yet King David was home. And as he looked out uh, on top of his high roof, he looked across the city, and he saw a gorgeous woman named Bathsheba. It's a woman that happened to be married to Uriah the Hittite, one of David's soldiers that was away at battle. He looked at her, he, he saw that she was beautiful, and he brought her to himself. And yes, we understand that, that David committed adultery, and she became pregnant. And he, uh, wanting to continue to cover up his sin, devised a whole plan that eventually backfired. And finally, he sent Uriah to the front lines of the battlefield where he was killed in battle. And then David was able to finally put an end to this problem, and he brought Bathsheba as his wife. David was clearly a man who was overcome with lust. He committed an act of adultery. He engaged in conspiracy. And King David, who's considered to be a man after God's own heart, committed murder. It seemed fine because it was all hidden. And yet we understand as the story goes on that, that the Lord knew. And the passage tells us that this act on David's part displeased him. And so the Lord sent the prophet Nathan to confront him. And Nathan tells a parallel that basically gets to the heart of what David has done and exposes the hideous nature of David's secret sins. Sins to which he is now called to account. Sins for which, as we understand the biblical narrative, he deserved to die. What an immense weight. What do we do when we're caught in and called to account for sins that we commit against the Lord? Sins that we know despise, are despised by the Lord, are displeased, that cause them to be displeased. How do we deal with the reality of sin and guilt 
in our lives. The question then becomes, if we're faced with this reality, is how can sin be lifted from us? How can the weight of guilt be lifted from us? It may seem like an odd thing to talk about today, especially as we're calling this series Good News from the Psalms. It might seem a little out of place to get to our own sin and guilt. But it's quite possible that this very thing could be something that is massively overlooked in your life right now. It's something that you need to consider and focus on. And really, as we ask the question, what can we do to remove the sin and the weight of guilt in our lives, is there anything more significant than that in any time? Is there ever a more relevant question than that question? How can the weight of guilt and sin be lifted from us? This is the question we ask today. We turn to Psalm chapter 51 to focus on these things. The opening uh, words above the psalm tell us that this is a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Let's see what the word of the Lord says in Psalm 51. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret parts. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors, transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. My mouth shall declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. 
then do you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This indeed is the word of the Lord. the heaviest weight ever carried by a human? Can you guess? The heaviest weight ever carried by a human. The Guinness Book of World Records has a particular category called this. Heaviest yoke carried traveling 10 meters. So it's a category for the heaviest yoke carried for 30 feet, 10 meters. Well, in September 2013, this category was created because German bodybuilder Patrick Baboumian, that's right, carried over 10 meters, 1,224 pounds. 1,224 pounds he carried 10 meters, or just over 30 feet. That's a heavy weight, and that is actually quite a long distance for such a weight like that. Can you imagine carrying a weight like that? Can you imagine what that felt like on his shoulders and all the way down his body to his feet? 1,224 pounds. Can you imagine? That's a heavy weight. And yet, as we read this passage, we recognize that there's an even heavier weight that we as human beings carry in this life. It's not a physical weight. It's not on our shoulders. And yet if it's not removed, this weight will crush us. And it's simply this. There's nothing heavier to the human soul than the weight of guilt due to sin. There's nothing heavier to the human soul than the weight of guilt that is due to sin. That's what David feels right now in this story and also this psalm. David feels the weight of guilt from his personal sin. That's what he's feeling. You can read it in the words. You can feel it all over the text in its tone. This is a penitential psalm, a psalm of repentance. And it's in these moments that David comes face to face with the weight of the guilt that he has because of his sin. It's personal to David. He calls him my transgressions, one, verse 1 and 3. He says my iniquities, verse 2, 5, and 9. He says, my sin, on four occasions, verse 2, 3, 5, and 9. He says in verse 4, I sin, not somebody else, it's me. I sin and have done what is evil in your sight. In verse 14, he says, deliver me from blood guiltiness. David feels the weight of his personal sin. This is personal. It's not conceptual to David what he's done. He feels the weight of it upon his shoulders because it is his personal sin and guilt. 
And in the midst of him feeling this, wait, he acknowledges who he has ultimately offended. Yes, of course, he's offended Uriah. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against, against Bathsheba. In many ways, you could see he sinned against the nation, misrepresenting the will of the Lord on behalf of the people. And he's called his servants to help carry out this plan and conspiracy. He has sinned against people. But ultimately, he says, verse 4, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He recognizes that ultimately, all sin has an offended party, and that is God himself. Sin is always, ultimately, a committed act against God himself. And as he feels this weight, he points to the source of such sin. He goes beyond the act to the condition of his heart. Look at verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. It's been part of his nature and his existence his whole life. He entered the world dealing with the full weight of, of of the depravity of humankind. We call this original sin. Yes, this ultimate offended party is God, and yet there's this universal reality that none of us escape. In many ways, we hear the voice of Nathan in this verse say, no, not just David, you who are listening, you who are preaching, you're the man, you're the one. Because just like David, you were brought forth in iniquity and in sin, did my mother, did your mother conceive you? It's interesting because many times, often, the universality of sin is used as an excuse, really. Uh, used as an excuse in our lives. Right? We say, well, everybody does it. Nobody's perfect. And in the midst of uh, the weight of sin and guilt, that seems to lessen the load. We talk about the universality of sin as an excuse for why we did what we did. But what David here is doing anything but that, he actually, his, his condition all the more uh, uh, magnifies the weight of his guilt that he feels. So he doesn't use this as an excuse, but rather a further magnification of the state that he's in, the weight that he feels. I think many of us can easily read this, consider the story. We can easily identify with his feelings. If we ever come face to face with a a troubled conscience or a sense of our sin and guilt, if we've ever been caught in, in, in the plans we've devised and come face to face, no uh, uh, argument or, or uh, defense. We just know what we've done. We become conscious of our sin and we feel this. And I wonder if that's you. If you've ever felt this weight. If you've ever known the, the heaviness of guilt and shame that comes from our sin. There have been times in my life where I felt it 
very poignant. Other times, not at all. And that makes me scratch my head a little bit. Because I know I regularly sin and disobey the Lord. And I know I regularly am subject to my own struggle with depravity. But there are particular moments that, that really are heavy. For whatever reason, I think oftentimes it's been connected to a deep uh, frustration and angst and, and sometimes anger that I felt and expressed towards other people. I think back on my uh, youth and my teenage years and the way that I found my, myself treating other people uh, in reaction to circumstances or events or maybe I felt like they let me down or, or, or something or, or frustrated me. I can feel, uh, even now, can uh, grab a hold of the emotions of times where I've just said very harsh things to very close friends. I feel the weight of that. I feel the weight of that sin and that guilt. Even uh, you wonder uh, how I could have said certain things and used certain tones with my wife. And Doreen and I were talking about how we feel the weight of our sin when we look back on the times we just lashed out at the kids, really laid into them. It's an uncomfortable feeling, and it's meant to be. I wonder if a lot of men in the room, as I've counseled them and talked to them over the years, have struggled with the shame and the weight of guilt related to lust and pornography. It's an epidemic. We talk about an epidemic in our world. It's an epidemic, and it's not just men, but surely I've talked mostly with men. They feel the weight of this, the shame. It's hidden. It's secret, yet the Lord knows. They know the Lord knows, and they feel the weight of it. I wonder if you've felt this kind of weight. I'm not sure what the sin might be or what the situation was, whether it's known or whether it's hidden, but you know what I'm talking about. You have been conscious of your sin, and you felt the weight of it before the presence of God. And you've looked into the mirror of the word of God, and you've heard the nation's prophetic echo say, you're the man, you're the woman. We've all felt that. If we've had any interaction with the nature and the holiness of God and the truth of his word, we've come to grips with our sense of sin guilt before him. But what's important here is what do we do with that? What do we do with this weight? I mean, most people would, would deal with the weight by, by, uh, of their sin being confronted with it by, by running away from God. I think that's what a lot of people do. They run away from God. They avoid God. They think to themselves, well, uh, you know, I got to figure this out first. I can't go to God. I got to run away from God. So maybe that's your tendency. Maybe you're a runner. You just bail. You turn away from God and you run away. You don't want to face it. I think oftentimes, though, people find themselves trying to not just run away, but to work it off. Like they, they think to themselves psychologically, if I've done this bad thing, I've got to make up for it by doing this good thing. I saw that with my kids with discipline. It was it's an interesting psychological thing to watch. It's like when they do something wrong and they feel that they, they want to make it right, 
they feel like they've got to do something to make up for it. We've seen it with our with with many people who've been caught in affairs and conspiracies and and and, and, and crimes. Our political leaders, like I'll never forget Elliot Spitzer, the governor of New York, getting caught with prostitution and all the, the, the conspiracy around. And what did he say? He said, I must atone for my private sins. He's got to do something to make up for it. Or Michael Vick, actually, around the same time when he was caught in the dogfighting ring, what did he say? I will redeem myself. He felt like he had to do something. And I think that's human nature, apart from knowing the right biblical healthy response to our, the weight of sin and guilt is to say, I've got to do something to make up for it. I've got to work it off. I'm in a debt. I've got to work it off. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's your tendency. Maybe you do all these good things to cover up and self-atone for the sin and the guilt of your own heart. But we see that David does not do that. David does anything but that. That David does not run from God. He doesn't attempt to work it off. No, David turns to God. The very God that confronted him. The very God that pointed the finger and said, you're the man through Nathan the prophet. David turns to God in prayer. He resists the common urge to run from and work for God. He turns to God. And the question is, why would he do that? Why would David turn to God? Well, it's simple. He knows God. And he loves God. And he trusts God. Man, he has fallen flat hard. But he's in a covenant relationship with the Lord. He understands the weight. And he knows that God alone has the power to lift the weight of his guilt. It's only God. The same God that is just and righteous that, that comes to him and confronts him is the same God who has the power to lift the heavy weight of his guilt, his shame, and his sin. You see, he knows that about God. He loves that about God. If you look at the opening verse, that's what he's saying. Have mercy on me, O God. What? According to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. He turns to God because he knows the kind of God that this God is. He is full of steadfast love. And he is abundant in mercy. He knows that God because God has revealed himself to his people to be just that. Exodus 34. A unique moment in history where Moses encounters the glorious presence of God. And God reveals who he is in a powerful way. And what is that that is revealed? I am a God of what? Steadfast love and faithfulness. Forgiving sin. Forgiving iniquity and transgression. That's who God is. And David knows that. He runs to God. And he prays on the basis of his steadfast love. His essence his nature that is abundantly merciful even to sinners like David, like me, like you. And so that's what he does. That's what Psalm 51 is. It's a prayer. It's him crying out. And he's crying out for mercy. 
fundamentally, there's, there's um, 17 requests. But if you want to lump them together in all these verses, it's really seen in verse 1. He's just asking for the mercy of God. He's asking for God to be merciful. That's all. Because mercy is in the nature of God himself. That's, that's one reason why he asks for mercy. Because he's, he's, he's requesting, uh, he's approaching a merciful God. And secondly, we see that mercy alone can cleanse him from the filth of sin. He says in verse 2, 7, and 10, wash me. He feels dirty. He doesn't just feel heavy. He feels dirty. He feels unclean. Wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me, he says. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be what? Clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow, verse 7. He says in verse 10, create in me a clean heart. He feels not just heavy, but dirty, and he knows that his only hope to be clean is that God would mercifully pour out his, uh, pour out a cleansing mercy to him. So if you're feeling the, 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 the filth of sin, hear the prayer of David. Seek the Lord yourself for a mercy that alone can cleanse you and shower you, clean you up from the filth of sin. You see, he also prays for mercy because he knows that mercy alone, the mercy of God alone, has the power to transform his heart. At verse 6, 10, and 17, what is he saying? He's saying, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He says, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. The sacrifices of God are, are a broken spirit, a, a broken spirit and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. I find it fascinating as we look at this 19-verse prayer. You don't hear him praying, Lord, please make sure that I don't commit adultery anymore. You don't hear him praying, Lord, make sure that I don't conspire with my servants to, to kill people. Lord, make sure that I don't uh, stay home when everybody else is fighting. He doesn't pray, Lord, make sure that I don't kill someone. good things to not do. Certainly doesn't want to do them again. But the focus of his prayer is not on actions. Like, God, make sure I don't do X, or God, make me to do Y, per se. The focus of his prayer and, and his request for mercy is, is one to be applied to the inner workings of his heart. He's praying for a new heart. He understands that human effort can conjure up change behavior on the outside, 
But human nature, or human effort, can never clean the human heart. That must be done by God. That must be an act of mercy. And so David cries out for mercy because he understands that the greatest issue he faces is not just changed behavior, but a radical, fundamental change of his heart. That what needs to be cleaned is not just his body, his hands, his face, not just that. But he understands that what needs to be cleaned is his heart. And the reason that he committed adultery, the reason he killed somebody, is because of the murderous intent of his heart. Because the lust of his heart, his heart, was the issue. And what he needed was the mercy of God to wash him, not just on the outside, but on the inside. To radically transform and clean his heart. That's what you need. Not just change behavior. Anybody can come up with ten rules to follow if they're disciplined enough. But they can't change and clean and transform the human heart. It can't deal with the original sin that we are plagued by. It's the human condition. Only God can do that. He's a God of mercy. That's why he prays for us. He also prays for mercy. He also prays to God for mercy because mercy alone has the power to restore from all sin has disrupted in his life. I mean, it's hard not to hear David's plea for restoration. And I wonder if you can identify with that. I wonder if you can identify with the disruption that sin causes in our life. That's what David knows. He's, he's praying, renew a right spirit in me, in me. Renew me. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Renew a right spirit in me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restoration was needed. Restoration was desired. And I think in the passage, we can see that restoration was needed and desired in at least three areas. Three areas of his life, his existence, sin had caused quite a disruption. It disrupted, first and foremost, One's relationship to God and others, but definitely to God. You know, if you go back to the story in 2 Samuel, you see it. 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven says this, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Nathan rebuked David and said, why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. David's relationship with God was disrupted in some way, shape, or form. I think that's significant to say. And it almost opens up the question, like, when, when a believer sins, because David's in a covenant relationship with the Lord. He's not an unbeliever. David knows and trusts 
and enjoys covenant relationships with God, and he has fallen flat on his face in sin, and he feels the weight of that. But the question becomes, like, what happens? What happens when sin enters the life of the believer? I mean, some would say that, that real believers don't sin. not true i mean if you read the bible you can see time and time again this battle this continual battle against sin we're putting it off we're confessing sin we're seeking forgiveness we're repenting we're putting it off repeat 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 no believers do sin well that's not true some people would say this that if i sin then I lose my salvation and I have to get it back again. Is that what David's praying for? Did did David lose his salvation? Did David lose his connection to the Lord and now he's got to hurry up, cry out for mercy, and get it back? Is that what happens when we sin as believers? That we sin and until we confess that sin, until we come to God and receive pardon, that we've lost our salvation as if salvation goes up and down, in and out? The answer to that is simply absolutely not. That is not what the scriptures teach at all. That is not how we handle these kinds of situations. But oftentimes you'll even hear this subtlety. People that would say, oh no, you don't lose your salvation. But if I sin, then I'm separated from God. Right? That's what sin does. Sin separates us. And yet we have already said time and time again, Romans chapter 8, that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. We've been united to Christ by faith. We know God. We trust God. We're in a covenant relationship with God. Nothing can separate us. Not even our own struggle against sin. So it can't be that. Sin does not divide us from God. It does not disconnect us from God. It does not divorce us from God. But sin in the context of a covenant relationship does have a disruptive effect in our blessed experience of knowing God. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. How can you know that? That when you sin, you you habitually give yourself over to sin. You're, you're, You're disrupting the joy. You're disrupting the blessed experience of being in a relationship with God. But not only that, Sin is disruptive in our worship. The language of verses 7 and 8, 14 through 17, get at this. Seem to show David's concern for being clean in such a way that restores his ability to worship God acceptably. This idea of being clean was important when it came to corporate worship. He had to be ceremonially clean to worship. He had to be clean. David wasn't. Saying cleanness, cleanness. If I clean, if I'm clean by your mercy, guess what? Then I'm going to praise you. Right? You look at verse four, fourteen through seventeen. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. 
O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Cleanse me, uh, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. You need to be cleansed so that you can worship. And that's what sin does. Sin is disruptive in uh, one's worship of God. And last, we see that sin has a, a disrupt, is disruptive in one's service to God. One's impact for God. Right? He's, he's asking for this restoration. And he says, verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. You see, that's what enables someone to teach and serve. Someone who has been, has been saved by the mercy of God. Not, not someone who's been perfect. Not someone who, hasn't, who has never experienced the brokenness and the weight of sin. But no, the person who has repented and turned to God, cried out for mercy, received it, and been restored and testified to fellow sinners, the goodness and the grace of God, calling them to return. David must be restored. He must return before he can call others to return to him. And so we see that sin has a disruptive impact in certain aspects of David's life. And mercy was the only way, the mercy of God was the only hope for all of that. That's why David goes to God. That's why David asks for mercy. He seeks to be cleansed in the deepest part of who he is. And he's aiming at restoration in his relationship to God in the worship and service of God, uh, and, and also, uh, yeah, in, in his impact for God. David, that's what he does. He goes to God. He cries out for mercy in this Psalm 51. And we have to know, like, what does God do? How does the Lord respond to David? In the midst of his sin, as he feels the weight of guilt. If you turn to the story, if you go back to the narrative in 2 Samuel, we hear the shocking and amazing words. David is, confesses to Nathan. He's confessing to the Lord, I have sinned greatly. And what does Nathan say to him? We would never expect this. But what does he say? Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. The weight of his sin was lifted. Yes, he still had consequences for his sin, but the weight of his sin was lifted. The burden of guilt was gone. That's what God does. He lifts the weight of guilt off the shoulders of every sinner who trusts in and asks for his mercy. That's what I want you to see today. It's, it's going to God. What do we do in the midst of our sin and guilt? We go to God and we ask for mercy. Why? Because it is God that is lifting the weight of guilt off the shoulders of every sinner who trusts in and asks for his mercy. This is fundamentally the nature of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
that when the sinner trusts in God and asks for mercy, God abundantly delivers. And he lifts the weight of guilt off the shoulders of every sinner who does. But these promises, I want to be clear, are for those who turn from their sin, who humbly confess their sin, who trust in Jesus Christ for mercy. Why Jesus? Well, it's simple. But it's beautiful. It's Jesus because he alone is the perfect man who does not sin. Jesus did not sin. Yet he is the loving Savior who carried the weight of our sin and endured the penalty of our sin. We know this from Romans 5. And I want to just give each and every one of you who know and trust in Jesus, who who come to him with the weight of, of your guilt and your sin, that you are assured of forgiveness. You are assured of pardon. Every sinner. Not just David, not just Mike Mason, but every sinner he forgives. Because he's a loving Savior. And he carried the weight of our sin. Romans 5 says that while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He took it upon his shoulders, a weight that we could not carry, a weight that would have eventually crushed us. Jesus carried it all the way to the cross as an act of sacrificial love for you. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone turned to his own way. Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He carried it. Isaiah 53, 8, 6, I'm sorry. We took to look to Jesus because he's the one who has the authority to forgive sin and remove all condemnation. We know that from Mark chapter 2, the healing of the paralytic, that Jesus looks at the paralytic and he says to him, my son, your sins are forgiven. And everybody challenges him and they say, who is this guy? He's blaspheming. No one can forgive sins but God alone. And what does Jesus do, he says? So that you may know that the Son of Man himself has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to the paralytic, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And what happens? He heals him. A sure sign that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Paul says in Ephesians 1, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Romans 8, 1 says this, There is therefore no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's in Christ, trusting in him, seeking him, receiving all that he is, that we have assurance of pardon, the forgiveness of our sins, and all the weight of guilt lifted. While you may be impressed with 1,224 pounds on a yoke, it really becomes a symbol for the weight that we feel because of the sin in our lives. And yet Jesus was able to carry it, and he's also inviting you. 
carry a much lighter yoke. It says in a Matthew, Matthew 11, 28 through 30, he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and I'm lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Some of you are so exhausted by the shame and the guilt that you feel related to your sin, trying to run from God, trying to work it off in good deeds. You're so tired. Jesus says, listen, take my yoke. It's light. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let him take your burden, and let him give you his. And as we do this, as we turn to God, and we trust in Jesus, we see that he is the foundation for all such love and mercy, all such atonement for our sin, that we can sing with David, who says in a different psalm, we can know the joy and the blessing of forgiveness, because he says this, he says, blessed is those, uh, the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. There is no blessing like the blessing of forgiveness, the blessing of pardon, the blessing of knowing that God graciously and powerfully and justly removes the weight of sin off the shoulders of those who turn to him and trust in him and ask him for mercy. Will you turn to him today? Trust him for mercy? Will you ask him? Will you ask him for mercy? Will you stop running from God? Stop avoiding God? Stop pretending and minimizing that you have no sin? Will you turn to God? Humbly confessing your need, crying out for his mercy on the basis of his essence and his nature on the basis of the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. Give the weight of guilt over to Him. Let Him carry it and take His yoke upon your shoulders. It's easy. It's light. Turn to God. Today, if it's for the first time, maybe it's turning to God for, for a time to just simply redevote, to restore to restore what sin has disrupted in your life. Restoring you to a vibrant, joyful knowledge of God and relationship to Him. To restore you to a worship that is refreshing and enjoying, enjoyable. And to a service and witness and an impact that brings about God's glory and salvation of souls in our world. I don't think there's a heavier weight that we need carry than the weight of guilt and shame in regards to sin. But I don't know. I don't think there's a sweeter taste of soul simply than the taste of forgiveness freely given by the God who made them loves them, saves them, died for them, and forgives them simply because they turn to him and they trust in him.
That's all that it is. Turn away from sin. Turn to God. Trust in Him. Ask for His mercy. And He will be gracious. Because that's what God does. That's who God is. That's what God does. He lifts the weight of guilt off the shoulders of every nothing hidden from your sight. And in love, Jesus, pursue us in our struggle against sin. You do not abandon us. You do not leave us in it. You come to us. You expose it. And then you do so in a way that brings about our healing, our redemption, our forgiveness, and our assurance that the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover all of our sins and all of our pray now that every person that has listened to this message this morning will turn to you for a drink freely from the well of divine mercy that will walk in freedom from their sin and that will know the joy of being restored back into a relationship with you with vibrant worship morning in your people? I pray that you would. We go to you through Jesus Christ, our Savior, Lord and God.